Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. Chip, there we go again. Aren't we having fun now, guys? It was doing this Tuesday night, Bruce. Remember, it did this at White Oak, so we went to Hardline, and then we went back to wireless, and it's been fine, and then all of a sudden Tuesday night it started cutting out. So if those who are watching the DVD, watching on live streaming, if all of a sudden I start going mute, we're having fun. All right. Let's have a few moments of silent prayer, and then we'll start. I'll, start, I'll open in prayer. Provided so much for us, we thank you that you have given us a Savior who has given his life for us, paid the penalty for our sin that we might have eternal life, and that the, the all of the different salvation are such that we have uh, so much provided for us that the scope of our salvation is far beyond anything that we can possibly imagine. The all the different things that uh, relate to the problem that exists between man and God, all the things that relate to solving that problem are far beyond what our finite minds can comprehend. And yet as we go through, see that you have revealed these things to us in, in many different ways. And as we study these tonight, we pray that you just give us a greater for all that you have done for us, all that you provided for us that we can uh, be moved, obedient in His name. Amen. This is really nasty. Application of all of this to the basic, uh, basic message of the writer of the Hebrews, which, remember, is to challenge these believers. They're Jewish background believers, probably priests, who are on the verge or at least tempted to bail out of Christianity and go back into Judaism. And so the writer is challenging them to stay the course, persevere in their obedience to the Lord in making doctrine first and applying the word because the long-term 
uh, the, the long-term results are such that God is using this time to prepare us to serve as the unique uh, royal priests of the millennial era, the millennial kingdom, as we rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. So those who falter in their spiritual growth, spiritual life today, run risks of losing rewards, run risks of uh, losing out on certain positions, privileges, and responsibilities in the millennial kingdom. And so the centerpiece of Hebrews begins at the end of chapter 6 and goes through the end of chapter 10, and this is focusing on recognizing who Jesus Christ is as our high priest and what significance that has for us. And so we, we went through chapter 7 dealing with the Melchizedekian priesthood. We went through chapter 8 dealing with the uh, change in covenant to the new covenant. Chapter 9 focuses on the atonement. It's a, it's a logical progression here, the kind of priesthood Christ had, the covenant that is associated with uh, his death on the cross, the covenant that is ratified by his death on the cross. It's not inaugurated. It's not, uh, it doesn't begin. It's not partially in effect today. Uh, this is one of, the th- one of the things that I think confuses believers more than anything else is just, okay, what in the world is our relationship to the new covenant? And we get back into it again in, in this particular chapter as well as in, in chapter 10. That all that happened on the cross is the new covenant's ratified. It doesn't begin. It isn't initiated. Uh, what happens on Act, in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost is not related to the new covenant because the new covenant, as we studied, is between God as part of the first part and the house of Israel and the house of Judah as part of the second part. And we went through all those passages last winter and early spring from the prophets, from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all dealing with new covenant uh, issues, recognizing that when the new covenant is is, goes into effect. There is a Davidic king on the throne. Israel is regenerate, and they're living in the land. It doesn't happen until the second coming. So whatever we have as church-age believers is not the new covenant. It may be an application or byproduct, but it is not the new covenant. The new covenant does not go into effect until that, that future time. And our priesthood, as I've gone back and thought through this and had questions and interacted with some other pastors on this, um, our priesthood is related to Jesus Christ's high priesthood. His high priesthood is not based on his, on his lineage from Aaron. It's based on a Gentile royal priest, Melchizedek. Our priesthood derives from his high priesthood. So that means it's not related to the Jewish high priest the Jewish priesthood at all and it in terms of the two parties to the covenant, to the new covenant, you have Jesus on the one hand, the Lord on the one hand, house of Israel, house of Judah on the other hand, we participate by virtue of our position in Christ, not on the other side. Now I believe at times that that it's an application. I've taught that in the past. An application on the analogy of the blessing to the Gentiles based on the Abrahamic covenant. But when we went through this this last time, it became clear to me that our 
priesthood is not simply an application of blessing to the Gentiles, but it is related to our position in Christ. So all of that sort of comes together. So we see these different aspects, and chapter 9 relates the ritual of the Old Testament in terms of the Day of Atonement to Christ's high priestly ministry and where he will go with that then has to do with with the challenge to us to stay the course and to, to mature as believers. As part of this, we have to understand the implications of that shadow image that they had in the Old Testament in the tabernacle because as we look at the shadow, we look at its fulfillment on the cross, then between the, the uh, comparison of the two, we get a sharper understanding, we fine-tune our understanding of all that happens on the cross. And that's what's happening in chapter 9 between verse 6, which is where I'm going to start tonight, between verse 6 and verse 27. Now what we did last time, and the time before, was to go to the atonement, the day of atonement in the Old Testament, and to look at what that means, look at what that word means. And that is so important to come to to a uh, to grasp this meaning of this Hebrew word kafar, which is translated atonement. And we've all heard the um, uh, the the meaning, the definition of kafar as covering. Now I was reading today in a familiar commentary by a familiar voice whose name I won't mention, and he made a typical classic argument. Uh, that we see in chapter 9 and 10, and that is that the Old Testament sacrifices didn't deal with sin they were because they were temporary. They, they covered it. They didn't deal with it. They didn't s- solve it. And that's really a poor, even, even using the cover thing, that's really not a good way of even explaining it because there was genuine real forgiveness in the Old Testament. It wasn't just um, make-believe. It was real. It was just provisional because Jesus hadn't actually paid the price yet. And we looked at the reality of that when we first started the tabernacle. We'll come back to that a little more. But the point I'm making now is we have to understand this word atonement. And what I pointed out last time is that atonement is really a multifaceted concept that relates to all of these different doctrines. It's not just atonement, and that English word atonement comes from at-one-ment, where you get that picture of reconciliation, bringing two uh, groups of people or two people together who are at enmity or hostility with one another. And so the English word was coined at-one-ment, bringing them together. Of course, that brings out the idea of reconciliation, to reconcile opposing parties. But when we look at different aspects of the Day of Atonement, there is the sacrifice, the blood sacrifice of the, the, the sin offering, the, the sacrifice of the burnt offering, the sacrifice of the bull for Aaron and his family and the goats. All of this relates to, and the application of the blood has to do with redemption. Redemption is then related to forgiveness. There is genuine forgiveness there pictured by the scapegoat. The scapegoat is taken off into the off into the wilderness, uh, the, the one goat receives the imputation of sins through the laying on of hands. 
is sacrificed. The other goat, which also receives the imputation of sins, is taken out into the wilderness by a trusted man who you know he's going to really get that goat good and lost, and he's not going to be able to find his way back because the point is that once these sins are paid for objectively by, uh, by the sacrifice, they, they, they don't, God doesn't bring them up again. He doesn't bring them back. We're separated from our sins as far as the east is from the west because of the objective payment. And I related that to Colossians 1.14. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And that, re, that is an appositional phrase where the term forgiveness of sins explains the term redemption. So that forgiveness and redemption are seen as synonymous. But redemption means to pay a price in the way most of us hear the word forgiveness. I know I'm going over this again. I feel like I'm going over it again and again and again because on Thursday mornings I have a group of pastors that meet up here and we hammer through all kinds of these issues, not just related to what I'm teaching, but usually what others are going through as well. But it just so happens that this was part of what we were working through today and talking about, so I feel like I'm just talking about this all the time, is that we look at forgiveness from a subjective viewpoint. And what I mean by subjective is in terms of our own, our, our own experience. So that we think of forgiveness in terms of lack of anger or hatred or I'm not going to, uh, I, I'm not going to be angry with you. We look at it in terms of our own sins or lack of sin, mental attitude sins or reaction to somebody for something they've done toward us. But that word forgiveness has another realm of nuance, which is an economic term, and we could say a legal economic term related to contracts. For example, if you enter into a state of indebtedness, when you sign a contract to get a credit card and you uh, borrow money on that credit card, there is a contractual foundation for that. Now there is a debt. It is a legal debt. When that debt is, if somebody pays that debt, you are for, or you are forgiven that debt, that is a legal contractual concept there. It is not a subjective, uh, emotional, or... Uh, personal concept. It is a legal slash economic concept. And that's very important to understand. And then we looked at Colossians 2 to 12, uh, specifically 13 and 14, and we saw that this is, forgiveness is further defined as taking that certificate of debt that was against us and it is nailed to the cross. So that the forgiveness that occurs, according to Colossians 1.14, and redemption occurs at the cross when Christ died and the Father imputed the sins to Jesus, not when we trust Christ in terms of our own uh, experience. Now, there's not a lot of vocabulary used to develop this, so we're, I'm sort of feeling my way along here. Last time I put this little chart up there to talk about the fact that the word atonement really has all of these different nuances to it. It is a, it's a word that multitasks. And we see the idea of redemption, 
expiation, which is related to forgiveness or the canceling of the debt, propitiation, that's the picture of the mercy seat, and reconciliation. And depending on the context, so you can have a context that moves you, if you can see the arrow, the context moves you up this way, so it would have more of a redemption nuance. But another context may move you more over into this direction, and so it would have more of a propitiatory nuance. Or the context may be closer to this side of that pentagon, and so it relates more to the forgiveness idea. So context really determines how you're going to understand uh, this this word. You can't just have a one-size-fits-all definition that you're going to use everywhere. And then I've also pointed out that in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that the Jewish rabbis made in the 2nd century B.C., had them translate the, the word kafar many, many times with the Greek word katharizo, which means to cleanse or to purify, not to cover. So these are different ideas. So that idea of cleansing, which is related to forgiveness or purification or wiping out, canceling something, it seems to be the core idea of atonement. But in order for that debt to be wiped out, what has to happen? It has to be paid. That's the redemption idea. Redemption always means to to pay the price. Uh, propitiation means that the price that's paid has to satisfy someone. And and the, in in salvation, the justice of God has to be satisfied by the payment uh, and the payment price. When that debt is canceled, then reconciliation is is possible. So, let me put up some of these verses I've just alluded to now, and I want to point something else out. I want you to notice what the price is that we have here. One other thing, before we get into the verse, uh, I got an email on this from someone this, in the congregation this week, and they put two and two together from last week and came up with four, which I didn't mention, and the, the four is what Jesus said at the end on the cross. He said, to telestai, which means it is finished. That's how we've nor- many of you normally heard it translated. It was an economic term that was stamped, as it were, at the bottom of a bill that had been paid. So it literally meant paid in full. It's completely paid. Now, when you put that together with the redemption concept of the payment of a price, and you put that together with the uh, forgiveness slash canceling of a debt terminology we have in Colossians one and Colossians two. What Jesus is saying at the end of the cross, at the end of of, of that uh, of his time on the cross, isn't simply that it's pay, it's completed, although that's certainly part of the the meaning there. What he is saying is the debt's canceled, the debt's been paid, it, it's it's paid in full. Nothing else can be added added to that. Now, what paid that price? And this is what we see in these verses. In Colossians 1.14, we read, In whom we have redemption through his blood. And then in Colossians 1.19 and 20, we read in verse 20, at the end, having made peace. See, that's a past concept there, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So the peace 
there is accomplished at the cross. But what accomplishes it? It's through the blood of his cross. Again, that terminology for blood. In Colossians 1, uh, 21 and uh, 22, verse 22, we read that uh, at the end of 21, 222, verse 22, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. Now, two observations there. First of all, we see that through death as a phrase here is parallel to what we've seen pre in the previous verses to through his blood. So blood and death are viewed as synonymous. That's going to be important for understanding what that term blood means. The second thing is that we see that once again it is that that is the payment price. It is through his death. Now, we go from there to looking at a couple of other passages, broadening things out from Colossians 1 to Romans, to a couple of passages in Romans, Romans 3.25 and Romans 5.9. Romans 3.25 says that, God, that Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. Now, that brings up a, the problem, we've seen it before, is that Translators are not consistent in how they, they have handled certain prepositions, especially this preposition, en, in the Greek, in. And we note that it's the same phrase in Romans 3.25 and Romans 5.9, except one time it's translated in his blood, and another time it's translated by his blood. Now, in his blood almost pictures an, an immersion. See, that's where you get that old... Him, here's a fountain not filled with blood or we're washed by the blood, those kinds of things. And in his blood is just not an accurate way of representing that Greek phrase. It is a means. It is the means by which something is accomplished. So the propitiation is through his blood. Redemption is through his blood. Peace is accomplished through his blood. Uh, forgiveness is through his blood. So that all of a sudden we're seeing that that phrase in his blood is an extremely important phrase. Romans 5, 9 says, much more than having now been justified by his blood. So the blood of Christ, that phrase, takes care of justification. It's the means of reconciliation. It's the means of peace. It's the means of redemption. It is the means of forgiveness. All of that is done uh, through his blood or by his blood, both of those terms through and by indicate that term, that uh, means idea. Now we come to a couple of pa- couple of references to this to the blood of Christ in First Peter. First Peter one two. We're told that the that <clears throat> we're saved according to the important knowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit for the purpose that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. There's that blood imagery again. And what does that mean, sprinkled with his blood? Does that mean there is a physical action there? Now, there's a physical action of being sprinkled by blood in the tabernacle. And we're going to see that talked about in this chapter, in Hebrews chapter 9, referencing back to the fact that Aaron went through and he sanctified everything by splattering blood on it, that all that that beautiful veil and all of the uh, furniture and everything had to have blood splattered on it uh, to set it apart. And then we read in 1 Peter 1.18, 
because you know, that's a causal adverbial participle there, because you know that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, so that that redemption is done through the blood of Christ. Now, this is an interesting thing. Now, we've talked about the blood of Christ before, and I need to spend time on it here as to just exactly what that means. Is it literal or is it figurative? But this becomes very important for understanding our passage in, in Hebrews chapter 9 and 10 because the word blood is used 15 times in these two chapters. So it is a central concept here. And when I went back and I was talking about the idea of forgiveness as contractual and legal, what's interesting is that as we go through uh, Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 15, we read, and for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant. Well, let's call that, let's translate it the new contract. By means of death, for the redemption, the payment price of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And then we skip down a few verses and we see a quote from the Old Testament, verse 20. This is the blood of the contract. There's the, um, And then we have an, a couple of other statements uh, later on as we go down through the chapter that connects, and into the next chapter, that connect the payment price of the blood to this contract. So this is all really legal legal metaphor, legal imagery that's used here, because that's the essential problem that man has with God, is that we broke that initial creation covenant not to eat of the fruit of the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we have to address this issue of what does blood mean and just a couple of observations that we have seen already that throughout all these passages, number one, throughout all these passages, blood is the price of redemption, the price of reconciliation, the price of forgiveness, the price of justification, and the price of peace with God. All of these are all paid for by blood. Second observation is that blood can either be understood literally or figuratively. If literal, then these describe a literal hemoglobin plasma corpuscles of Christ, and there's something about physical blood. Now, what's interesting is this is these are the chapters. It's the imagery in Hebrews 9 and 10 that gave birth in the Middle Ages to a Roman Catholic heresy that the angels gathered up the literal blood of Jesus from the cross and carried it to the heavenly altar and applied it there. And that, that's where th- that, that idea sort of developed in the Middle Ages. And then as that sort of filtered down and through in and out of uh, affected Protestant circles and everything, you see people who took this phrase, the blood of Christ, as, as something very literal, and that's exemplified in some, some of the hymns. Now, I've seen people react to this in, an, in, in, in going too far in the other way, and you see any hymn that mentions the blood of Christ got X'd out. Well, that's not right either. The Holy Spirit thought that the phrase the, the blood of Christ was a uh, completely appropriate figure of speech to use, and just because people misuse it doesn't mean it shouldn't be used. People misuse the Bible all the time, but we don't throw the Bible out. 
So it's thoroughly legitimate to sing hymns that talk about and use the phrase the blood of Christ. What's inappropriate is to use hymns or sing hymns that use that in a literal fashion as opposed to uh, a fig, being understood as a figure of speech. Now, we've seen various passages in the past that indicate that the term shedding of blood must be understood as an imit, as some sort of figurative sense. Genesis 9-6, which lays down the foundation for capital punishment, states, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. And that is understood and interpreted to mean whoever commits murder uh, should be executed via capital punishment because he's created in the image of God. And I made the point before, it's not, too, uh, it's not preventative, it's not retribution, it's not vengeance, it's justice. It is surgical. This is a person who is so deteriorated to lack respect for human life to the degree that he takes it should be uh, surgically excised from the body of the human race just like we would remove a cancer. That's the idea there. But the imagery is what we're talking about here, and it's not just talking about murdering somebody in a way that causes bleeding. It's not talking about cutting their throat or eviscerating them with a sword or decapitating them with a sword or any other form of violence that would cause uh, bleeding, uh, exsanguination. What it's talking about is any kind of murder. So it include poison or strangling or any of these other things. So obviously this is understood as a figure of speech. Genesis 42.22, Reuben answered them saying, Did I not speak to you saying, this is in the context of their having taken Joseph and put him in the pit and then sold him to the Midianites and told... Uh, 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 Jacob that he had been killed by uh, 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 varmints. And he's, uh, verse 22, Reuben answered him saying, Did I not speak to you saying, Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen. Therefore, behold, for some reason I lost part of the verse, his blood is now on us. Is he saying his physical blood is on us? That somehow we, we've all got blood, physical blood splattered on us? Well, no, I mean, Joseph didn't even bleed. He didn't get killed. He was still alive. He's now a slave. It's, it's using the phrase his blood to refer to his, his life and the guilt of taking his life probably um, at, th- at this point he thought he was probably dead. And so it's used as a, as a substitute for a related concept, which is his life. And then... Uh, another key, another two key passages we have to keep in mind, Genesis 9-4 and Leviticus 17-11, which tell us the significance of blood. Genesis 9-4 says, You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So here we see this connection. Blood represents life. Shedding blood, therefore, represents shedding life or causing death. And that's where we see this connection. Again, Leviticus 17:11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar, blah, blah, blah. But the principle is life of the flesh is in the blood. So blood equals life, and shedding blood equals taking life. And that gives us a good, a good starting point. Now, let's look at Hebrews 9, 6. 
Hebrews 9.6 to pick up the context. There's a lot about blood all through this passage, so I'm going to... Uh, We're going to spend some time talking about how to understand that figure because every time we hit it, we have to talk about it, so I've got to lay that foundation. Hebrews 9, 6 says, Now when these things have been thus prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. Verse 7 says uh, to the second part or to the second room, Into the second one, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Now, I'm reading from the New American Standard. And if you look at the New American Standard in 9.6, ends with a comma. And 9.7, when I find and get it up here, 9.7, there it is, begins, doesn't begin a new sentence, it's the continuation of 9.6, and the sentence ends at the end of verse 7, and that's how it should be punctuated. The King James and New King James versions end verse 6 with a period and make verse 7 an independent clause ending with a semicolon, and then which separating it from verse 8 as another independent clause. Now, the reason all that grammar is important is because 6 and 7 are indeed one sentence. And in order to understand it, we have to keep those compressed. One of the idiosyncrasies of the King James and New King James translation is the translators tried to make each verse an independent clause, and sometimes that really does uh, does violence to the thought that the author, meaning the Holy Spirit, is presenting there, and it, it fragments it. So Hebrews 9.6 begins by saying, Now... When these things have thus been prepared, the participle there related to the translation of prepared is a perfect passive participle. The perfect tense indicates completed action, but in the case of a participle, it's indicating completed action that precedes the action of the main verb. The main verb in Hebrews 9.6 and 9.7, because it's picked up and borrowed by 9.7, is the word entering. In your translation in the New American Standard, it says uh, continuing, continually entering. In the New King James, it translates it, the priests always went into. Both of them have that idea, always or continuous. That idea is not inherent in the Greek. It is interpretively added uh, to the Greek. The Greek simply states that the priest, the priest uh, are are entering, or the priests enter the outer tabernacle, and the verb there that we have the participle that we have to begin with is katasquadzo, which means to make ready, prepare, build, construct, erect, equip, furnish. It's the idea it's used in nine one of this related to the. Uh, or excuse me, 9-2, for tabernacle was prepared. It's just the construction of something. So once all of this is constructed, it's what the writer is saying, once all of this had been completed and built. And then the next statement, the primary clause is, the priests enter. And it's stated as a normative condition. It's what the grammarians call a gnomic statement. That means it's just stating 
what normally typically went on. It's not emphasizing the sense of of continuity, which would be another nuance of the present tense. It's indicating what the normative pattern was that priests entered. The priests entered the outer tabernacle, but the contrast is that the high priest uh, enters the holy place. The only the uh, the other priest could only go into the uh, outer tabernacle, what we refer to as the uh, holy place. And they entered into the holy place to perform. It's a another participle, but it's a participle that's used an adverbial participle of purpose. They entered to perform the divine worship. And again, this phrase divine is added. Uh, That is, again, an interpretive addition put in there by the translator. The word is latreia, which is where we get our English word liturgical. It's related. Uh, It simply means a, a religious service. And we would understand this to relate to our service, the way we, the priests served God in terms of the ritual and the ceremony in the temple. This is the same word that is used in Romans 12.1 where Paul says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your latreia, translated spiritual service of worship. But in the, in the Greek, it's that's your latreia. So the use of latreia there in Romans 12.1 enforces the idea of our individual priestly ministry is to serve God. That's how we function today in serving God. I mean, that's how we function today as priests is in serving God with our, with our lives, learning the word of God, letting it transform our lives, and letting that work out its natural result in terms of Christian service, which is, uh, which is all, whatever your area of spiritual gift or whatever the responsible needs are around a congregation or in terms of the body of Christ, whether you are specifically spiritually gifted in that area or not, we are here on this earth to serve uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 9 is reinforcing here uh, through the use of this particular word. Just as the Old Testament priests served God uh, in the tabernacle, so church-age believers in terms of church-age priesthood serve God, uh, serve God with their lives. So the priests entered into the outer tabernacle, the holy place, uh, uh, to perform service, and the implication is service related to God. Then we come to 9.7, and we have the contrast. In contrast to what the everyday priest did, all the other priests, the high priest entered once a year not without taking of blood. In English, that's a double negative. Actually, it's a negative plus a preposition in the, in the Greek. But it's stated in an awkward way to slow us down a little bit and let us pay attention to what this is saying. It's, instead of saying, but into the second one, only the high priest enters with blood, he says, not without taking of blood, emphasizing the importance that he has to enter with blood on this particular day, which is the Day of Atonement. Now, the, the way I've corrected the translation here to get the sense, 
is to read it, but into the second, only the high priest enters once a year. Because the context of Hebrews 9 is talking about what happens on the Day of Atonement, not what happens the rest of the year. And, only, and, he, and, and we have to understand the whole phrase, only the high priest enters once a year with, with the blood. That's the point. It, the Day of Atonement only happened once a year. Now, I'm fully aware of the fact that there are people who take the position based on Leviticus 16.1 and uh, this, this verse that what this means is the high priest only went in once a day. That was it. He didn't go into the Holy of Holies at any other time. And that, of course, relates back to the problem we have with the location of the altar of incense. And so you either end up saying uh, he made a mistake back there and the altar of incense really wasn't inside the Holy of Holies, it's outside, or you end up having to understand this to refer to only the context, which is the Day of Atonement, uh, other times he might he might not even have to go into the Holy of Holies in order to change the censer on the altar of incense. If it's just on the other side of the veil, he could open the curtain, place the censer there, and leave without ever entering into the uh, Holy of Holies. So there's other ways to possibly uh, to to explain that. But this is, as I pointed out, this is a problem, and I think the best solution is to move the altar of incense inside the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and uh, not necessarily in the second temple because we know it was different then. But we've covered that in detail. So he goes in, and here's our first mention of the fact that he it's not without blood. I mean, just the way it's emphasized there really puts this stress on the fact that that blood has to be there. That is what allows him to enter into uh, the presence of God is the bearing of that blood from the uh, from the from the sin offering. So we have to ask the question: Why the blood, and what is going on here, and what exactly does this mean, and how are we supposed to understand it? And this is where we get off into something that's that's uh, you probably never learned any time in undergraduate school or high school or junior high in terms of figures of speech but it helps us to understand many things in the Scripture. We have this, this phrase, this is a figure of speech. Sometimes you've heard it simplified as simply a metaphor, or this is a representative analogy. And those are extremely broad, vague terms. There's all kinds of figures of speech that could be classified as metaphors, but you can break them down into uh, truly dozens of different kinds of figures of speech and how you understand those subcategories is important to getting a better handle on the, the kind the figure of speech and what it means. And there's two that are important in understanding the blood of Christ. One is called a metonymy and one is called a synecdoche. And the reason, and I'll tell you what the end result is, the reason it's, it's important is that... Um, in Bollinger's book, Figures of Speech of the Bible, he concludes that what we have in the phrase, the blood of Christ, is that it's called a metalepsis. I'll spell that for you before we're done. A metalepsis. And what a metalepsis is, is it's a compound of a metonymy and a synecdoche. It's one of both. So that's why we have to look at both of these. He, he understands, and I think he's right, it's a, you, so you have to understand how these two things fit together. So I'll give you the definitions. 
A metonymy is a figure of speech by which one name or noun is used in place of another name or noun to which it stands in a certain relation. Now, that's a key word there. It stands in a certain, uh, a certain relation uh, to the, uh, the other noun. In a synecdoche, and I'll put the definition up here. I'm going to go back and forth, so I don't want you to get too confused. Need to leave this up on the slide on the video for a good while. This difference between the metonymy and the synecdoche is the synecdoche is the exchange of one idea for an associated idea. Okay? That's going to be the difference. One is one noun for a related noun, like blood for blood guiltiness. A synecdoche associates one idea with an associated idea, like blood for death. See, they're related ideas, not related, not associated nouns. Not related nouns, they're associated ideas. Okay? So back to metonymy. A metonymy is a figure by which one name or noun is used instead of another to which it stands in a certain relation. The change is in the noun and only in a verb as connected with the action proceeding from it. So it primarily relates to a noun. That's all he's saying there. So it's it's a noun that has a certain relation to another noun. Synecdoche is associated ideas. That's, that's the main thing you need to remember from this. But what Bullinger says is that this is a figure by which one word receives something from another which is internally associated, associated with it by the connection of two ideas. That's when a part of a thing is put by a kind of metonymy for the whole of it. Now, see, these two things, the metonymy and the synecdoche, are really close together, and he's splitting the hairs kind of thin here. Um, it's when a part of a thing is put by a kind of metonymy for the whole of it, or the whole for a part. The difference between metonymy and synecdoche lies in this, that in metonymy, the exchange is made between two related nouns, while in Synecdoche, the exchange is made between two associated ideas. Now, that seems all abstract, and you're going, hmm, okay. Let's look at some biblical examples. You know, it's funny how many figures of speech we use. Uh, you, you know, you, you, you look at that chair. That chair, you, you say that chair is sitting on four legs. Those aren't legs. You've got legs. That chair doesn't have legs. You're so used to saying it that way, you don't realize that at one point in the development of the language, that was a, an analogy of the four things going down from a table or a chair were compared to the legs a person had. But now we just call them the legs of a chair or legs of a table. But that's really a figure of speech, a, a comparison. And there's many other things like that that we use in language, and we, we're so used to what they mean in terms of their interpretive significance, that we don't stop and analyze what they what their literal uh, their literal meaning is, and and language is that way, and that, that's what kind of makes the study language fun. Genesis six twelve, God looked at the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Now, wow, that's that's interesting. Uh, phraseology there. The word flesh there is a figure of speech. 
Is it all flesh? Is animal flesh? Is human flesh? Is bird flesh and fish flesh? No, but flesh is used to refer to only a specific kind, and that is human flesh, humanity. So the word flesh relates to uh, relates to humanity. So it is a synecdoche where you have one idea that's associated with another idea. Okay, so the idea is flesh, which is associated with mankind, but it's not the only kind of flesh that there is. Another example would be using the same imagery. It's Psalm 145.21. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. See, the all here is also part of the, uh, uh, the, the figure of speech because... It's not all flesh. There's fish flesh and bird flesh and pig flesh and cow flesh and deer flesh and all kinds of flesh. But we're talking about humanity. So flesh is put for a related idea of of the human race. So that is typical with the synecdoche. One idea is associated with another idea and is substituted for it. Um, Another passage would be Isaiah 40, verse 5. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So again, we see all flesh here relates to all, uh, all people, all mankind. And it's the same imagery. Another example of the synecdoche is what's called uh, synecdoche of the species where a smaller category is put for a larger category. Psalm 44, 6 David writes, For I will not trust in my bow, nor will my sword save me. Well, what about Uzis? What about AK-47s? See, there's other kinds of weapons, but these were the kinds of weapons he had. So he picks two examples of weapons, but what he's talking about is human weapons of war. That's the broader category, and he's using two find two small examples of smaller categories to represent that larger category. And what he is saying is we can't trust in human implements of war and protection to save us. Our protection and security comes from God. So it is a synecdoche where one idea is substituted for another related, another related idea. So... We have another example of that, Psalm 46, 9, the same kind of category. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. Well, what about the sword? Okay, see, see what he's doing? He's just using two examples of weapons, but what he's talking about is the broad category of weapons. This would include tanks and, and uh, helicopters, and I threw that in for you, Claude. Um, you know, bombers. Uh, everything else. So uh, it just it's a it's a figure of speech, a synecdoche where you have one idea that's closely related, uh, associated with another idea. Okay, Deuteronomy 1912 uh, brings up a category related to the use of the word blood as a synecdoche, and here blood and the Hebrew it's actually a plural bloods is put for murder. 
Okay, so it's an associated idea. From then the elders of the city shall send and take him from there and deliver him into the hand of the avenger of the murderer, of, of murder rather, the avenger of murder, uh, that he may die. So you have, um, this is related to the laws related to the uh, cities of refuge. So the one that's guilty can be turned over to the one who is the avenger of the, the murder victim. He's bringing justice to the, for the murder victim. And blood stands for murder in this particular case. And you have other examples of that. Um, Psalm, 9, Psalm 912, he who requires blood remembers them. See, blood is put for life. God requires a life when someone has committed a capital crime. So blood is put for life. It's an associated, uh, it's a, it's associated idea. So we go from blood to life. Uh, let's see what other examples do I have? Uh, Leviticus twenty verse nine. If there's anyone who curses his father or his mother, he shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood is upon him. Here, blood is put for guilt. So we have all kinds of figures of speech. And see, when you read that, you are, so, you are so familiar with the English language, and you've heard this before, you automatically interpret that. You go from, without, you, you go from, from the literal to the figurative and understand it without breaking down all of the steps, all of the steps in between. Well, you know, Deuteronomy 19.10 uh, is another example. Psalm 29. One, for some reason, it kept picked up all kinds of underlinings, so just ignore that. These are examples of metonymy. Examples of metonymy. Now, what is a metonymy? Let's go back to our definition. A metonymy is a figure by which one name or noun is used instead of another name or noun. It's not an associated idea. It's one noun placed, uh, replaces a Another noun in terms of what it has a certain, uh, in terms of which it has a certain relation. So here we read, and see, it's already translated this way for you. It was hard to find this in some of the more modern translations like New King James, updated translations, New King James or New American Standard, because they've already brought over the imagery. So you have to look at the Hebrew to see the figure of speech. Psalm 29.1 in the New King James or probably in the um, New American Standard says, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. But literally it reads, Give to the Lord, give to the Lord glory and strength. Well, how can we give the Lord glory and strength? He already has, He's already omnipotent. I can't give Him any more strength. I can't give Him any more glory. He already has that. So it's used as a metonymy where uh, we can praise God for these attributes, but we can't give them. So they are put by metonymy or noun substitution uh, for praise. And so, see, the translator already does that for you. He brought that over. He understood the imagery, and he translates it in light of the uh, figure of speech. Uh, Proverbs 1, 10, and 11. Proverbs 1, 10, and 11 does a similar thing. Uh, in this, it's using the word blood again. Uh, blood is put for shedding blood or committing murder. 
And so here it's used as a metonymy of a word substitution as opposed to synecdoche. That's where just because it's blood doesn't mean it always fits one category. Uh, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. That is, in order to shed blood. See, so it is a one noun is put for related noun, shedding blood. Let us ambush the innocent uh, without cause. Sometimes you can have what's called the metonymy of the cause, where the cause of something is put for its effect. For example, the tongue is put for its effect, such as slander or gossip or something uh, of that nature, what the mouth produces. Deuteronomy 17.6 says, uh, in, it's translated, they've translated as, a, as an idiom, on the evidence of two witnesses. But literally what it says in the Hebrew is, on the mouth of two witnesses. But see, mouth is put for what is produced from the mouth, the testimony. So on the evidence or on the testimony of two witnesses. Uh, Genesis 45:21. Then the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them carts according to the mouth of Pharaoh, literally. But the mouth doesn't do it. It's the, what came out of the mouth, which is the command of Pharaoh. So this is a, a metonymy. We see the same kind of thing, for example, in Exodus 5:3. At the end there, uh, the Lord says, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. And the imagery there with the sword, sword is put for the a slaughter or massacre. And you get the idea, so I'm just going to skip down to Isaiah 33:15. Here's where we get an Old Testament example of a metalepsis. A metalepsis is sometimes called a double metonymy. It's actually a metonymy and a synecdoche both. He walks righteously and speaks uprightly. He despises the gain of oppressions, who gestures with his hands, refusing bribes, who stops his ears from hearing of bloods. What he really is saying is hearing about bloodshed or the one who committed the bloodshed. So you see, it's hearing about bloodshed. That's one part of the figure of speech. Then it's talking about not just the bloodshed, but the committing of the bloodshed. See, it's a two-step imagery. That's why, why it's a metalepsis. A metalepsis does, has a double figure. So it's, it's talking about he doesn't want to hear about the murder or, or he doesn't want to deal with justice at all. So blood is put for bloodshedding, and then bloodshedding stands again for the murderers who shed it. Now, regarding this metalepsis, Bollinger writes, in the New Testament, the expression, the blood of Christ, is the figure metalepsis, because first the blood is put by synecdoche for bloodshedding, i.e. the death of Christ. So you have the phrase, the blood of Christ stands for his physical death by synecdoche, as, his death as opposed to life. And then his death is put for the perfect satisfaction. Maybe what I would say his physical death is then put by metonymy for his spiritual death. That's what Bollinger is saying in essence in slightly different words. His death, his physical death is put for the perfect satisfaction made by it for all the merits of the atonement affected by it, i.e. it means not merely the actual blood corpuscles, neither does it mean his death as an act, but the merits of the atonement affected by it and associated with it. 
And he goes on to say, so here in Revelation 1.5, it must not be rendered in his blood, which is not only contrary to Old Testament type, where nothing was ever washed in blood, which would have defiled it and made it unclean instead of cleansing, but it's contrary to the letter as well as the spirit of the word. Revelation 1.5 means washed us or loosed us, that is the idea of cleansing us, purification from sins, skipping down, so that such expressions are to be avoided as washed in the blood of the Lamb and the sentiment contained in the verse, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. And he concludes by saying, all such expressions are contrary to physiology and common sense. We lose nothing of the facts, but gain immensely as to their meaning when we understand that by metalepsis, blood is put for death and death for the atonement made by it, that is the spiritual death made by it, and its infinite merits. And we'll just stop there. The point is that once we understand this, then when we start looking at what the writer of Hebrews is saying with all the discussion about the blood of the sacrifices in verses 12, verses 13, uh, verse 14, he's got the phrase blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is the basis for his being the mediator of the new covenant, verse 15, and uh, on and on and on through the rest of the chapter. If you don't understand this figure to begin with, then you get lost. But when you understand the figure, all of a sudden it begins to open up a lot of dimen- all these different dimensions and facets to what's going on with what the Savior did on the cross. It's related to the, it's the payment price of redemption, justification, forgiveness, reconciliation, peace. All of these are by his blood, which is, in other words, by his spiritual death on the cross. And that, when we go through Scripture, what's to motivate us to live a spiritual life? It's when we un- the more we understand the cross, the more we should be motivated to serve the Lord. Father, we thank you for this time to study these things tonight. We pray that we'd be encouraged by, challenged in our spiritual life to serve you, live for you, Romans 12, 1 and 2, that you might be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.